Next message in this little series on living by faith in a sin-cursed world. As I considered passages, this is one of those passages that just kind of has to be looked at along this line, Psalm 73. This is what's called a testimony psalm. You can hear it, can't you? Throughout it, he said, this is what happened. This is how I responded. Uh, this is what the Lord uh, did for me and showed me. So I'd like to begin my introduction with, well, a testimony. 30 years ago, remember that ladies, 30 years ago? 30 years ago, Trish and I had our first child. Ashley was born, this little frizz head little girl. Uh, beautiful, lovable, and she also had, what's it called when your skin's all yellow? Um, jaundice, a really bad case of jaundice. And so uh, they had us uh, bring home this thing to put her in to help with the, the jaundice and put her out in the sun and that sort of thing. And we had to watch her 24-7. And I was working at a factory job. And so, boy, those were, that was a fun time, <laughs> tiring time. 30 years ago, I was diagnosed with diabetes right, right about this month. Um, that was fun. I had slowly been losing weight. I was always skinny at that time, but by that point I was 150 pounds. I looked at my hand, it was just skin on bones. I felt I was dying. And you knew I was desperate when I said to Trish, not only do I need to see a doctor, I mean, when a young man says he needs to see a doctor, you know he's desperate, okay? But I said, I don't care if it's a woman doctor. <laughs> I, need to, I feel like I'm dying. I was, and I didn't know it. Um, spent a week in the hospital. So I'd like you to put two and two together. Actually, I didn't mention I'm almost done with Bible college at the time. I'm making a little bit more than minimum wage. We were uh, convinced that... Once the Lord blessed us with children, Trish needed to be home, uh, leading, providing, uh, caring for our children and teaching them. So I'm the sole breadwinner. And what did I just do for a whole week? I was in the hospital. And that was free, wasn't it? Oh, no. So, I mean, we were already poor as newlyweds, already very poor with a brand new baby. Our, I remember distinctly our lunch and dinner was often hot dogs and macaroni and cheese. <laughs> I mean, we were poor, <laughs> but we had love, right? And you can live on love. Um, and we lost all this money from not uh, having a, a week's worth of pay. Um, had a hospital bill. And sadly, I received some teaching from a well-meaning man. who wasn't my pastor, thankfully. But he said... Uh, he said, when, you, when you're considering different opinions, you need to come at it from a perspective that they might be right. Don't doubt them, and don't have any preconceived notions. Now, if you've been here at Oral Bible Church any length of time, you know that is not the philosophy of teaching that I do here. Because there is... And, okay, so the only way you can know the everything else is from God's point of view. You can't go at it with a blank slate. There's no such thing as a blank slate. 
And all that time with our newborn, with her health struggles, with my health struggles, with lack of money, uh, uh, and other things that were going on, I started studying humanism. And I was going at it from the perspective of, but this man told me I should do it. Maybe they're right. Guess what effect that had on my faith? I started to doubt. If they're right, then God's wrong. My parents are wrong. My pastors have been wrong. My Bible college is wrong. I am thankful for God's preserving grace that he kept me from that. We have a very similar circumstance here in Psalm 73. He begins in verse 1 by saying, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. What is he saying here? Well, he is beginning, number one, with his conclusion. This is, that's your blank there, my conclusion he doesn't start at the very beginning. He starts at the end. He said, this is my conclusion that God blesses his people. He said, the Lord is good. That means God blesses. So how does God bless? He says, God always blesses because God always helps. God always guides. God always delivers. He always leads. And the psalmist says here in verse 1, this is where I ended up. How did I come to that conclusion? What were the events that led to that point? Well, first I need to tell you number two on your notes there. First, I need to tell you about my confusion about the world. My confusion about the world. Verses 2 to 16. He says in verses 2 and 3, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He says, number one, I almost left the Lord. I almost left the Lord. I saw how successful and thriving unbelievers were. And I wanted that too. If they have all that and they don't love Christ and they don't live for Christ, maybe I'm wrong. And they're right. And the psalmist said here, that affected my seeking the Lord and my living for the Lord. So much so that I almost left him. Why did he think that? He explains this in verses 4 through 12. Let me give you the blank here. He says, from my angle, A-N-G-L-E, from my angle, nothing goes wrong for the wicked. Another way of saying angle is from my point of view, from my perspective, from my vantage point. From my angle, as I'm looking at it, nothing goes wrong for the wicked. How so? Verses 4 and 5. There are no pangs in their death. Their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. In other words, they are free from troubles. Verse 6. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Because they are free from trouble, they are proud and ruthless. It makes up their very appearance. It's their clothing. It's their, uh, uh, what they wear around them. Verse 7. Their eyes bulge with abundance. 
They have more than heart could wish. They have everything they want. That's the point. They have everything that they want. Verses 8 through 10. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks the earth. Therefore, as people return here and, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. They have evil speech that intimidates others, that scoffs at God, and that threatens others. That's why, that's the idea there in verse 10. His people return there. They, they are so intimidated by the wicked who are proud, who have everything, who have these positions of power, that they cow before them. Or they want what they have, and so they follow them. They're very proud. Verse 11, they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? You know what they're saying here? The psalmist says, it doesn't, they're saying God doesn't even notice. And God doesn't care how I live. That's how the wicked think. There is no God. He doesn't pay attention. I live how I want, and he doesn't stop me. God isn't stopping me. And he's emboldened in his sinfulness. Verse 12, he says, is a summary. Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. They're carefree. They're comfortable. They're well off. From my angle, nothing goes wrong for the wicked. And so, verses 13 to 14, I became convinced it was wrong to follow Christ. And you can see here I'm bringing it into a, a New Testament perspective here, okay? Applying it to our lives. He's saying, I became wrong. It was, I became convinced it was wrong to follow Christ. 13 and 14, Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. What's the psalmist seen? I have seen the wicked. They got everything. They're prospering. Things are going well. I seek the Lord, and what's happening to me? Verse 14, I'm suffering. That's how my day starts, that's how my day ends, and that's how every day continues. They're rejecting the Lord, and they have everything. I'm following the Lord. I love the Lord. And I'm getting all this. I'm having a hard time. Everything's going wrong. It seems as if I'm wasting my time seeking the Lord. And what does it bring? Just constant, continual suffering. This is verse 2. Verses 13 and 14, that helps us see verse 2. My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had almost slipped. And the, verses 13 to 14 tell us how he got to that point. And number four. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. What's he saying here? Number four, he's saying this. I didn't publicize my thoughts. I didn't publicize my doubts. And we see here God's preserving grace. He's struggling. He's struggling. And if he had said this, verse uh, 15, it would have been a harmful effect on other believers. It would have been wrong. And I came away from this, these couple verses thinking, boy, praise the Lord, he didn't have Facebook. 
that he didn't have Twitter, that he didn't have Instagram because he'd put, be putting posts and tweets and Facebook or Instagram uh, shorts and things like that. I'm just having a hard time. I don't think there's really a God. And others would see that and start to think the same thing. There's a lesson there, isn't it? Don't tell folks on Facebook your doubts about Christ. What do you do? Keep reading. Number three, the psalmist tells about my correction by the Lord. My correction by the Lord. He was not in a good place, so what's he going to do? Remember my situation 30 years ago? What did the psalmist do? Well, he had to think, what do my parents tell me to do? What did my pastor tell me to do when I doubted the Lord or I had questions? They said, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. And so, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. And so, for number one, I'm bringing it into our time and day, okay? He says, number one, I went to church. I went to church. The means that God appointed for hearing and learning about him in that day and age was the temple. That's where the teaching Levites were. That's where they worshiped God through the sacrifices. That's where they gathered with other Israelites who were pure in heart to worship the Lord, to pray, and to cry out. That was the means that God appointed to have a right knowledge of things. And in our day and age, the means that God has provided to having a right knowledge is his church, the local church. He says, I went to church. A couple passages you could write down along this line. You could write down Psalm 63 in verse 2. Psalm 63 in verse 2. There, the psalmist talked about how he longed for the Lord, and he said, So I looked for you in the sanctuary to see your glory and your power. Also write down Psalm 77 and verse 13. Psalm 77, verse 13. He said, I'm going to remember the things of the Lord. I'm going to meditate on his work and talk of his deeds. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? And so the psalmist would then say in Psalm 27, 4, Psalm 27, 4, because that's where God was worshipped and that's where he was learned about and that's where he was sought. Psalm 27, 4, One thing I desire of the Lord that I will seek, that I may dwell where? In the house of the Lord. How long? All the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I went to church. And when I did so, number two, the Lord helped me see things from his angle. The Lord helped me see things from his angle. Verses 18 to 20. So he's doubting. He's almost leaving the Lord. Seems like I'm wasting my time. What do my, my parents and my pastors tell me to do? Seek the Lord. You seek the Lord at the temple in our day and age in the church. And then verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary. Verse 17 
is a crucial verse, a crucial statement in this psalm. It's like a hinge. Things turn because of what happened in verse 17. The Lord helped me see things from his angle. And what did he see? He saw that the Lord will judge the wicked. Verse 18, surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they're brought to desolation as in a moment. They're utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. How does, how, how did the, the ju God's judgment on the wicked, how did the psalmist learn? What did he learn? What did he learn about God's judgment? Beginning at verse 18, you set them in slippery places, God's judgment is inescapable. They can't escape, it's slippery. The second part of verse 18, you cast them down to destruction, God's judgment is sovereign. They are, they Here's an important thing to remember because remember, he's in the sanctuary, he's seeing, and he's seeing the wicked were never apart from God. They were always under God's control. God was sovereign. He was letting them go in their wickedness. He was already judging them by letting them continue in their wickedness and not save them from that. He would bring their judgment about. Verse 19 they're brought to desolation in a moment. God's judgment will be sudden. The rest of verse 19, it will be a complete reversal of their situation. They're utterly consumed with terrors. Remember how the wicked were spoken of in verses 4 to 12? Their eyes bulge with fatness. Nothing goes wrong for them. They've got all that they want. They're at ease. Suddenly, the complete opposite. They're consumed with terrors. And verse 20, they're completely forgotten. It seems as if God is asleep, doesn't it? Read verse 20. Look at that again with me. As a dream and one awakes, so Lord, when you awake. It seems as if God has just been sleeping and not paying attention. Is that true? No. The Lord is sovereign. He's just waiting. And he will judge them. But when he does do that, his judgment is so complete, he'll despise their image. They're going to be like a dream completely forgotten. You ever wake up and you think, wow, that was a bad dream. Or that was quite a dream. And then you say, I'm going to tell somebody about that. And you're like, I had a really good dream, but I can't remember it. Sometimes we can. They're going to be like a dream. As a result of this, the psalmist says, number three, I saw I was thinking like an unbeliever. I saw I was thinking like an unbeliever. Verse 21, thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. When I saw this truth from God's point of view, when I saw it from his angle, I saw the picture from his point of view. And I saw I was viewing things like an unbeliever. Remember what the world tries to do to you? Romans 12, 2. It tries to press you into its mold. And you're not to be pressed into that mold. You're not supposed to be conformed to the world. But you're supposed to be what? Transformed how? By the 
renewing of your mind. That's what's going on here for the psalmist. I saw, I was thinking like an unbeliever. I viewed things and assessed things from physical instinct. That's what he means uh, in verse 22. I was like a beast before you. I was just responding. A physical response. A physical assessment. And that grieved and it vexed me. Verse 21. Number four, though I doubted, God was always faithful. Though I doubted, God was always faithful. How is God always faithful? Look at three ways here in verses 23 to 24. Three ways. We see his faithfulness in that opening statement. I am continually with you. How do I know that you're faithful, God, and that you're always with me? Number one, end of verse 23, you hold me by your right hand. In other words, God's help in the past. That's the expression, that's the intent, that's the, the force of the verb here. You hold me. You've held me. You've kept me in the past. Beginning of verse 24, you'll guide me with your counsel. This is God's guidance in the present. That's the point of the Hebrew verb here. Right now you guide me. How did he get that guidance? Verse 17. I went to the sanctuary. I went to church. I used the means that God appointed. I learned his truth. And he's taught me by his counsel. The rest of verse 24. The third way that God is faithful. Afterward to receive me to glory. God's salvation in the future. You see, from beginning to the present to the future, God is always faithful. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. Along this line of the end of verse 24, after to receive me to glory, let me give you a couple examples of this from the Old Testament using the same Hebrew verb here. Genesis 5.24. Genesis 5.24. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. He received, he took him. 2 Kings 2.3, 2 Kings 2.3, the Lord took Elijah. And then Psalm 49.15, God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. He shall receive me. So the psalmist He's learned about the Lord. He's seen things from God's point of view, God's angle. He confessed his sin and thinking like an unbeliever. He recognizes God's faithfulness. And verses 25 and 26, number five then, he says, my faith was strengthened. Isn't that one of the key reasons the Lord sovereignly has you go through trials? To strengthen your faith? James 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy. When you go through various hard times, knowing this, God uses that to strengthen you and to make you more like him. Look at verse 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He envied the, the physical. He envied the material substance and abundance of the wicked. What does he say about that? It's all going to pass away. It's going to pass away. But God won't. I want you to hear what the psalmist says. The psalmist doesn't say, 
He doesn't focus on the gifts that God gives him. He doesn't say on the things that God has done. Who does the psalmist focus on? He focuses on God. He says, God is my portion. God is my strength. We sang, and be thou my vision, verse 4, without the, the, the instrument to, to emphasize that. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. And then what's the next line? Thou, mine inheritance. How long? Now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure, thou art. God will never pass away. He's your possession, Christian. He's your desire. He's your strength. He's your inheritance. The New Testament puts it this way, 1 John 2, 17. The world's passing away in its lust, but he who does the will of God abides forever. You might lose everything in this world. You might have nothing in this world. My flesh and my heart may fail, verse 26. But when you're in the Lord, you have everything. And here you could write down 2 Corinthians 5.1. 2 Corinthians 5.1. We know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And so the psalmist says, and you can too, because you trust the Lord, you no longer envy. You no longer envy the world. He closes, number four, with his conviction. My conviction of the Lord's justice. My conviction of the Lord's justice. He says in verse 27, Indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You've destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. Number one, he says, I know the Lord will judge the wicked. Those who reject him, those who abandon him, those who are unfaithful to the Lord, they will be judged by the Lord. In verse 28, it is good for me to draw near to God. I put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. And so he says, number two, I trust the Lord and will tell of his works. He will draw near to God. I will draw near to God. Starting in verse 17, going to the sanctuary. God might not seem very near, but he is. Remember verses 23 to 24. He's always been with you. He's guiding you by his counsel. He will lead you into glory. God might not feel near, but he is. And so you trust him. One more thing. The last statement he says, that I may declare all your works. Remember from verses 15 and 16, what wouldn't he declare? His doubts. What do doubts do? They're all over the place, aren't they? They're all over the place. We shouldn't declare our doubts. You know who especially shouldn't declare a doubt? A teacher. There is a maxim, a principle for education that the teacher's doubt becomes the student's denial. And I've seen it happen. Don't, pro, don't proclaim and don't publicize your doubts. What should you proclaim? And what should you publicize? The Lord, his truth, it'll never fail. It can seem like it, can it? That everything goes right for everything else, everyone else. 
It can seem like it, that life is going really hard for you. And you can come to the conclusion, why am I even bothering with this Christianity thing? Why, am I, why even bother praying? Why should I pray about this? Why should I? The bottom of your sheet gives a summary of this psalm. When you're tempted to leave Christ because the world looks better, you must seek the Lord. You must seek the Lord. You must see things from his angle. You must see things from his angle. And you must trust him because, remember the conclusion in verse 1? The Lord blesses his people. The Lord blesses his people. Some application from this psalm. And I apologize, I didn't have room for you on the, the bulletin here for this. And the scripture reading took up the insert. So, some application. First point of application, the most foolish thing you could do, Christian, is to evaluate, evaluate life without Christ. That's the most foolish thing you could do, is to evaluate your life without, from, uh, apart from Christ. To evaluate life from your angle. To try to judge things from your perception and how you think. Why are things happening the way they are? And to leave Christ out of it. And to think, maybe there is some truth in it and maybe I need to learn from that. God is truth. The only way you can learn truth is from God. Truth is whatever corresponds to who God is and what God has said. And when you evaluate life with Christ from your angle and on the basis of your current conditions, that's going to result in doubting. That's going to raise questions in your mind. It's going to take your eyes off Christ and have a verse 2 situation where you stumble and you slip and you start going away from the Lord. It will result in verse 14. A woe is me attitude. A second point of application, much shorter. Envy is practical idolatry. You might not bow down to some carved piece of wood, but when you start envying something that someone else has, you start being covetous about that, that is a practical and everyday version of the practice of idolatry. Colossians 3, I think verse 10 says that. Covetousness is idolatry. That is living by sight, not by faith. It's not being content with what you have. It's leaning on your own understanding. It's judging Christ by the world. It's not submitting to God's perfect providence and sovereignty. What's the hymn that we've sung many times? What God ordains is always good. His mercy is forever. Christian, don't love the things of this world. They're passing away. Seek the Lord, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. Don't set your mind on the things here. Set your mind on the things of where Christ is, at the right hand of God. Or Matthew 6, when Jesus says, don't worry about wealth and clothing and all this kind of thing. 
The Lord will provide for your needs. Be content with those things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things I'll add to you. Another point of application. There are not different angles. There's only God's angle. It could probably be stated better and make a professor happier, but you know what? I want you to get the point right now. There's not a bunch of different legitimate angles at looking something. You know, his way of truth is right, and his way of truth is right, and his way of truth. No. No. Hogwash. There's only God's way of looking at things. And how can you know his way? Through the means that God has appointed and provided. And the only legitimate response to God's provided explanation is belief, knowledge, assent, unreserved trust. A fourth application. Your church must be baked into your schedule. You must bake your church into your schedule. Doubts are always the first step from departing from Christ. It's living by sight, not by faith. And that will have an effect on your soul. When you regularly gather with your church, you know, through the week, you're out in the world, aren't you? You're having to deal with hard things. And when you come, and so when you, when you can view church, you can almost view like, I'm tired. I need some time for myself. I need to get this done. Folks, you need to seek the Lord. I can't tell you how many times, and yes, Pastor Greenfield feels this way sometimes. I'm tired. I got stuff to do. I got to go to church. Well, I don't have quite that attitude, but I'm tired. And I can get discouraged too. Feel me. I'm flesh and blood, just like you, okay? But every time when I gather with God's people, I'm always encouraged and refreshed and strengthened. You need to bake it into your schedule. And that will also have an effect on others, verse 15. I'm not going to proclaim my doubts because that will have a negative effect on them. I am going to make it a point to gather with Christ's people because that's the means, the channel that Christ has provided for perseverance and growth. If you feel that God is far away, did you hear how I said that? If you feel that God is far away, you have to respond by faith, not the feelings. Is God far away? No, he is not. Remember verses 23 and 24. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. You will receive me to glory. Lord, the work that you began, you'll bring to completion. I am in your hand. No one can pluck me out. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. Lord, help me to follow you then. One last point of application. Could it be that there might be here this morning some individuals that verses 4, verses, aspects of verses 4 to 12 characterize you? You do what you please, things are going well, you're proud, you scoff, you make fun of Christians, you make fun of the Lord, you don't care about 
the Bible. You haven't been paying attention at all to the message. You just kind of stood up and sat down as we've been singing because I don't want to look stupid. I'm just kind of going through the motions. Do these things characterize you? I can tell you what your end will be. Your end is verses 18 to 20. If you continue in that, the Lord will put you on an irreversible course, a slippery place. He will cast you down to destruction. Remember Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, where he described being God's judgment and God's sovereign control as a spire was on a, on a string? We got something considerably stronger here. God casts you, and once God throws you, there's no bringing back. That is your sure end. And verse 27. You will perish and you'll be destroyed. Right now, however, you're still alive. You're still changing oxygen to carbon dioxide one breath at a time. Your brain, all the things that are going, are still working. You have but a moment right now, dear friend. And you must repent of that sinful way, the way you've left the Lord, and you must look to Christ only He can save you. You must repent of that. He Only He can wash your sins away. And when you trust Him, He gives you a new standing before the Lord. He saves you. And instead of destruction, you have life. Seek the Lord. Christian, seek the Lord.